Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. With me today is David Siegelman, who is the founder and chief executive officer of Moisha House. In high school, David started a nationally recognized homeless feeding organization, Feed the Need. While attending the University of California at Santa Barbara, he served as the Hillel student president and later the executive director of the Forest Foundation. He founded Moisha House in 2006, an organization that provides vibrant Jewish community for young adults by supporting leaders in their 20s as they create meaningful home-based Jewish experiences for themselves and their peers. We'll learn a little more about this model from David in a moment. David has been recognized by the JCSA with the Young Leadership Award, the Bernard Reisman Award for Professional Excellence, and UCSB Hillel's inaugural Alumni Achievement Award. I brought David on the program today because he runs one of the most successful organizations in the Jewish community right now. And it engages the elusive 20s and 30s in Jewish life in a way that had not been seen before he helped create it. Hopefully he can share some of what he's learned in his experience in doing this type of work. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So we'll start as we always do with your story as to how you got into this very unique position. So growing up, I grew up in a city, Hayward, California, which wasn't heavily populated by Jews. There were no Jews in my elementary school, except for my sister. And then same with middle school. And it turned out that in high school, we ended up going to a Catholic school in Oakland, which was nearly 20% Jewish. So that was really my first more of immersive experience. And from that, I got involved in BBYO in high school and really had an amazing experience in the summer of 1997, going on a teen trip to Israel through the East Bay Federation. And from there, I came back having, for the first time, a really close-knit group of Jewish friends. So between BBYO and this group of friends living in the East Bay, being part of the Jewish community was something that I knew I wanted to continue, especially when I was going off to college. So it became something that I was interested in when looking at schools. And that, combined with the location of Santa Barbara, led me to UC Santa Barbara, where I went off to college. And while I was there, I got involved and No, I think a lot of this stuff is how you can get lucky and be in the right place at the right time. And when I went to UC Santa Barbara and wanted to get involved in Hillel, it was right when they were finishing the actual construction of the new building. So my involvement and engagement happened at that exact time. And so some of the community and leaders there gave a little bit of attribution to me and some of my friends' involvement in Hillel bringing in more people and having it more engaging. But really, we were there at the right time because the new building was there and there was Mm -hmm. all sorts of momentum. So that was something that I wanted to continue and I was able to at UC Santa Barbara, both through Hillel and also I was working at the synagogue as well, which was a great opportunity to have a part-time job. And that was Congregation B'nai B'rath, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I continued that Two really transformative things happened for me that led me to really do this work professionally. One was that at Hillel, I sat down at a Friday night Shabbat dinner, and the director of Hillel, Rabbi Steve Cohen, suggested I sit next to this guy, Morris Squire, and his wife, and I had never met them. 
he was 80 at that time. She was about 26. And we sat down. He asked me to sit with them because, you know, they sort of stuck out a little bit. They weren't students. And so when I sat down and asked them, oh, you know, how did you hear about Hilla? What are you doing here? He said, I like to come here for Shabbat because all the old people are at synagogue. So (laughs) I said, okay. And he asked me a question that I'll never forget, which was, if you had a million dollars to spend and you couldn't spend it on yourself, what would you do with it? And I had never thought about having that much money or buying anything in life that wasn't a basic necessity. And so I shared with him my ideas and he didn't like any of them, but (laughs) he gave me his card and suggested I give him a call. His business card had his name on it and said artist. And so- Wait, do you remember any of those ideas? Yeah, my idea was build a JCC. I really wanted like a better space in the community outside of just for the college students. I didn't really think Santa Barbara had like a great meeting space because the Federation was really an office building. There was no JCC. And the synagogue was really set up for, you know, religious school and services. And not a particularly good idea. So right. yeah, I continued the conversations with him and he invited me over and through a whole sequence of things, teaching his wife, Sokarita, who is from Cambodia, how to read and write in Hebrew so that she could participate in Shabbat with him and everyone else. He sort of shared that he had a foundation and he gave me a chance to share ideas with him. And most of the ideas he didn't like and some of them he did like. And I went every week and shared ideas and he started funding those ideas. And I became the executive director of his foundation because I made business cards for myself that said executive director. I don't think I ever showed him the business cards. I'm not sure he would have considered me that. But it was an amazing experience and one that I was happy and excited to be doing in sort of an experience role. It was a lot of fun, but it wasn't something I considered a career. I studied business and economics. And the second thing that really led me to then think about how I could build Jewish community as a profession was towards the end of my sophomore year, my dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And it was obviously a huge shift for our family and for me, and it was terminal and everything changed. And I needed to really go home and help with the family. We weren't in a financial position to continue on the way we were going with college and stuff like that. And so I applied to this thing, the Hebrew free loan, this interest-free loan so that I could finish my sophomore year of college. And I applied for $2,000. That was just the balance for that year. And I remember the interview. I remember who it was with. And they called me back and they said that they didn't approve the loan, but they met and they would do my tuition for that $2,000 and all of my junior year if I you know, was able to come back to school and work enough at the synagogue in Hillel to pay for my rent and my food that they would cover the full tuition and it be a grant, not a loan. And they did that for my senior year as well, this group for the Hebrew Free Loan Association. And that was transformative for me because it made me feel like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what type of person does this for another person or what this community looks like, but I knew that it was something that I wanted to be a part of for the rest of my life. So it was really Mm -hmm. those two things that then created this prism that I could see actually spending all my time on working in the Jewish community. That's awesome. So bring us to the point where Moisha House comes in and all this. Yeah, so I graduated from college and I had an internship while I was in school that turned into a full-time job. 
all throughout that, I continued to go to Morris's house every week. I'd share ideas. He'd say yes, no. We were running amazing programs. I loved it. It was very local, but he was really funding at like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year now. And it was adding huge benefit, in my opinion, to the Jewish community and beyond in Santa Barbara. It gave a real freedom for young people to think about things and not have to put together long studies or evaluations, or we could follow our gut and try things as long as they were small bets. And so one weekend, I went back up to the Bay Area to visit my family. And while I was there, I had dinner with some friends who had gone on that summer teen trip back in 1997. And there were four guys and they were renting a house in Oakland. Three of them were working full time. One was in grad school at Cal. None of us were involved Jewishly. We were all too old for college. We were in our early 20s and way too young for young adult stuff. Young adult stuff was really like for people in their mid-30s and 40s. And like you'd go to something if you did go to something and it was people at a completely different phase of life, right? completely different phase of life. And so as a result, there was zero engagement. And in their house, there was nothing because it was a rented house. So they weren't like, you know, saving up their money to get Judaica and, right. <laughs> and, and stuff like that. It just, you know, wouldn't make sense. So we decided let's do a Shabbat reunion for our friends from the Israel trip and see what that would look like just for fun. And Morris, the philanthropist, got the main dish. He got the chicken. Everyone brought sides, emailed friends, and 73 people showed up for a Shabbat dinner. And it was amazing. And from it, I got an email the next week from someone who said, I have three friends. We all went to Camp Tawanga to a summer camp together. We love to put on programs like this in San Francisco. And so then all of a sudden, there were these two houses running all sorts of programs for their friends and friends of friends. And the only thing I had ever learned about or heard about from fundraising is that if someone pays for something, you name it after them. Right. So Morris, <laughs> there you go. Morris used to tell me that when he was a little kid in Chicago and his parents would do anything Jewish, they'd call him Moisha. So he said, all right, Moisha House. And that was in 2006. And then from there, we just started getting emails and calls from different people. Enough interest that we grew to maybe 10 houses the first year, 15 houses the second year, 20 houses towards the end of the second year. And I started doing this full time. Everything was great. I actually couldn't imagine why anyone ran an organization differently. You have one person, they pay for everything. <laughs> the you know, dream, right? It's fantastic. There's no board, there's no fundraising. And then I found out why that doesn't really work out because in July 2008, when the market crashed and there was other issues going on and stuff like that, his foundation closed down. Mm. And so Moisha House went from being fully funded as part of his foundation to zero funding. And we didn't actually have an entity to exist with it. As a program, you know, Morris and I were able to start it together. And as an organization, it really started in August 2008. When you started this project and thinking about today, you know, 10 years later or so, what do you think you couldn't have predicted when you started this program or the original vision or what you thought it was going to be to what it is today? I thought a few things. I mean, I was dreaming big. So I thought there could be 50 Moisha houses. <laughs> Sorry. You know, yeah. <laughs> today there's 106 and, yeah. you know, we're growing about one a month and I also thought I did all the financial projections. And at our peak, we may need to raise $4 million, which felt like insurmountable. Daunting, yeah. That was enough for me to not even try it. But this year, 2017, our budget was $10.4 million, and we're looking at $12.8 million next yeah. year. And a staff yeah. of how many? <laughs> our staff, <laughs> is, we have, you know, we're about 55 staff. 
and not just 55 staff we're in probably eight countries when we did our staff retreat this year there were more people at the staff retreat than at the first three Moisha House resident conferences. Also, I never would have imagined anything past the house model. And while it's still the core, in addition to the houses now, we're running nearly 100 immersive learning retreats, three-day retreats around the world around Jewish education and content. We have 500 Moisha House Without Walls hosts. We're running a program for emerging spiritual leaders to give them funding and training so that they can build Judaism that's relevant and compelling to this population and beyond. I mean, there's just things that we're doing that I would have never imagined. Right. And this is all based around people in their 20s. Yeah. I mean, our model is really post-college, pre-family, pre-settling down. And even that continues to widen. So we do serve people in their early 30s as well, but our focus is 20s. So I guess like from my own experience, right, I grew up in the reform movement, you know, was very involved with Nifty, felt very connected as a reformed Jew, and then worked in a lot of synagogues as a religious school teacher, as a youth group advisor, and just felt like that gap, right, that seems to be what Moish House is filling, the post-college pre-kids. And it feels like that is this holy grail in our community that everybody wishes that they could tap into. I previously spoke with Gather DC and kind of thinking about their model of engaging and connecting one-on-one. So kind of a two-part question, like what is it that is so successful about your model and what are more institutional organizations missing in their efforts to engage a similar age cohort? Well, there are a few elements that I think are key to engaging this age group. One is giving ownership to them. So peer-to-peer really matters. Giving people the opportunity to create and build and engage their friends and friends of friends is key. I think grassroots and authenticity and transparency are things that young adults can sniff a mile away if it's not there. And we invest a lot in leadership development these days. I'm not convinced of it for the most part because... I'm not sure we're really investing in leaders because if we are, then we have to be also standing up and saying we're willing to follow them because they're leaders. Hmm. Uh, It feels to me a lot of the training that we're doing is actually, rather than calling it leadership, it's more molding people into what we are so that we can have them do what we've been doing. Right. And so I actually think we can be investing a lot more in followership training. How do we get folks to be trained on how to follow someone who might have a different idea than you or want to go in a different direction. And what I've seen is when young adults get involved in organizations and have ideas that aren't in perfect alignment, they just basically get kicked out and not listened to. So I think that those things exist. I also think that actually content matters a terrific amount. And to have sort of fluff things where you're trying to just bring people together or purely social nights at a bar, happy hours, It's just not going to have the thickness to build community. You know, the second part of the question is, you know, what are folks missing? I think the challenge is, are we really engaging people to then follow and listen to them? Or are we engaging them to try to join and do exactly what we're doing? Mm -hmm. And those are very different objectives. I mean, for us, what we're trying to do is give people the confidence and community to build Jewish life for themselves, their peers, in their homes, in their communities. And we understand that's going to look different in different places. Some of it looks very traditional. Mm -hmm. Some of it looks very reimagined. And all of that for us is good as long as it's tied to that kind of ritual and tradition and Judaism, as opposed to saying, 
this is the only way that Judaism is structured and you have to sort of fit into that box. There's a couple of themes that, you know, I've touched upon with a lot of other guests on this program that kind of brings up for me. One is the idea of having younger people on your board and really thinking about the value of those perspectives in when you're making these decisions. And if that is kind of the right place to allow for leadership, and it sounds like it's the right place if you're actually allowing them to be leaders in that context. I definitely think it's one of them. I mean, it's got to be from the bottom all the way to the top. Mm -hmm. The younger board members bring so much to what we're doing. And we always keep a resident on the board as well. And not like a come talk to us and then leave. You don't have a vote. Mm -hmm. And then so your current makeup of your board, are there a lot of high dollar donors that you have at the moment? Or is it kind of this interesting mix that's constantly changing? There are some terrific donors. The folks that are in their 20s and early 30s are some of our largest donors too. You know, so it really varies, but the idea is to have a good mix. Mm -hmm. But we do maintain people in their 20s and 30s as the same proportion as beyond on our board. So have you kind of perceived in the years of doing this work, kind of the larger Jewish community, not only, you know, the impact Moisture House has had on the shape and the look and the feel of the community, but your perspective on how has the Federation's roles changed? How have you benefited from or competed with the structure that was in place, the synagogue structure, the Federation or Foundation structure? How did that dynamic work? I'm not sure that it's just the Jewish community that's changed. I mean, the world is changing, like some examples, and I'll get into some of the things that you mentioned, but there's lots of things changing. For example, people don't collect things anymore. They collect experiences. And so as we're looking at that, it's like, what kind of experiences can we create for people? It's not about things anymore. And so we did an adult Jewish summer camp this year, and we're going to do two next year. And it's amazing. And I think it'll just grow and grow and grow. And we had someone today who sent us a message. You know, I'm not even on Instagram, but someone screenshotted it and sent it over. But it said, hey, working on my spring calendar, my friends went to Camp 9 and I last year. I had serious FOMO what weekend so I can plan around it. I mean, that's what people are doing. They're capturing the photos and the experiences. And so that's changing in ways that things like buildings and stuff like that, they don't matter as much to the user. Mm -hmm. I think transparency is something that's totally shifted. You just can't be an organization that you're not going over and above to share where your expenses and income are coming from mm -hmm. or else people don't want to be involved in that. At our resident training conference, we have a session where we go over every line item in the budget. The budget's not for the board meetings. The budget's for anybody and everyone. It's a public charity. There are just trends happening with big tent versus lots of tents. It used to be, how can we create a programs and environments that everybody feels welcome? We don't want environments where people feel unwelcome, but in order to create authentic experiences, it's really about lots of little tents. And they might all fall under the big tent of Judaism, but those little tents are going to look a little different. And that's actually an important strategy. So I do think folks are grasping that and moving in those directions. The problem is it's hard to move quickly when, when you have all these other historic expenses and hardware and things like that. So I think some are adapting well. The foundations, I think, are, are really interesting. The mega foundations have really shifted this space. If we think about organizations that have scaled, in the last 10, 15 years, it's hard to name any that weren't started by a philanthropist or 
in partnership with a philanthropist from day right. one. To start a program without having a mega funder from day zero, good luck. Right. It's almost impossible. Especially something that would be of scale. What I'm doing is not that hard. It's not something I'm trying to scale with, you know, lots of participants and expenses. And I mean, it's for seed money for lots of things. That's, you know, just really hard to do on your own to start. That didn't used to be the case as much. There are a few more communal ways to sort of grow an enterprise. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with the American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina. This international Jewish college prep boarding school implements a holistic curriculum, which includes experiential learning, competitive athletics, creative arts, and leadership development. You can learn more about their educational philosophy at AmericanHebrewAcademy.org. Before returning to my conversation with David, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Lisa Hills is the co-founder of Hirsch Hills Associates Consulting Firm. She discusses with me the best ways to improve talent management in your organization and how to play to the strengths of your employees instead of trying to fit them into a job description or your expectations. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. That's such a good question. I have so frequently worked with CEOs or college and university presidents in particular who are, tend to be more reflective and analytical and also just you know, very comfortable with making quick decisions and they're strong leaders. And I will watch this dynamic where they'll walk into a room, they'll share something, everybody will nod their heads and they'll look at me and they'll say, did not go great. And then everyone will stop me on the way out and whisper to me, I can't believe this is the direction right. I'll, I you know, I'll have to be, you know, and, yeah. and I'll say to this person, you know, I'll say to the CEO, you know, are you sure? And he's like, but I'm such a nice guy. I'm so approachable. Like, right. why didn't they tell me? And I say, well, you didn't really give people the opportunity. And there are ways you do that to ensure. And there are people who are not going to say it in a group setting. And you have to create those opportunities. And as somebody at the helm, as a senior person, you do have to make sure you are genuinely inviting difference of opinion and challenge and feedback because it's not going to happen on its own. You really have to develop that as a culture. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Lisa in the next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to David. I think another interesting point about your model is the mobility aspect. And I think that what synagogues and federations are missing. And I've touched upon this before. There's this expectation, right, that you, both in being donors as well, right, you move somewhere and you buy a house and you live there for 30 years and you're a donor to the federation for 30 years and you're at the synagogue for 30 years. And that was, you know, the trend for a long time of this trying to bring people together locally because they're all going to be there for a long time. And this idea that, you know, you're in the house, you're out of the house. Some people are here, some people aren't there. You move to the city, you come to an event, you come to one event, you come to 10 events, you come to two events a year, right? It's this sense that this demographic is mobile and always moving and always kind of around. And the sense that in every city, there is a Moisha house or there is this option to engage in Jewish life, regardless of where you are or how long you've been there or what you're financially able to contribute. I'm assuming most Moishe houses don't charge for their events. Is that correct? 
you know, unless you're going to like say a basketball game or something right. where there's a ticket price, but no, to go to Shabbat dinner, you go and you bring something. Right, right. So this model of sort of small and niche and everywhere, synagogues can't really be that. And I think we will see synagogues reimagined and some will exist in the form right now. You're seeing consolidation already, but there will be, I think, new forms. We're seeing it. I mean, you look at the Jewish Studio Project in Berkeley that's out of a art studio led by a rabbi in Brooklyn because Jewish with Dan Ain and, and Rabbi Dan. And there's a model now being developed in Chicago, which is like a concierge model synagogue where you pay, you know, let's say $400 a year and you have your rabbi and you engage with them, but there actually is no synagogue. I don't know where they'll all take us, but I think that they're engaging people in interesting ways. And I do think that there will remain an important place for the traditional synagogue. I just think it'll look a little different. And same for federations. I think that they will just look a little different. Which is a good thing. I I think it's a good thing. (laughs) Because, you know, Judaism 200 years ago didn't look like Judaism does today. 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Well, I think you're right, because it's hard to look at something inevitable and say it's a bad thing. because if you're doing that, you're just never going to win that fight because it's inevitable. So really the question is, given that it's going to change, and I'd say this about Moishas, given that Moishas is going to change, what are we doing to go with a change that can maintain our mission Mm -hmm. and our values at the highest place? Why do you think it's so hard for people to kind of internalize constant change? Why is that hard for people to think about planning for and having constantly be a part of your culture? You don't have to have an answer. I don't know if I I, even I have an answer. Because people get comfortable and good at what they're doing. No one wants to fail. Right. And I was at a meeting with someone on Monday this week, and he was asking me how many Moish houses should there be. And I showed him all this data and stuff. I think there should be about 200. I think there's like 200 possible. And he said, you should be aiming for 500. Don't aim for what you know is possible. Right. Don't aim for what you know is possible. I'm like, That sounds terrible. Like, like how frustrating is that to not be able to accomplish my goals? I want to accomplish my goals. Well, and not only that, it seems like a sort of narrow thinking. Like, well, great, maybe it's two hundred houses and a thousand programs outside of these houses, or it's you know two hundred houses and something new we haven't even thought about yet. That's kind of in that model, you know, not just kind of stuck in what it is is doing well, right? Yeah, there's extreme discomfort in not knowing. I mean, in anything. And so when you start talking about change, there's the discomfort of not knowing. And that's just scary. I think mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just naturally scary. And for some people, it's exciting. But for right. most, it's scary. And I love this idea around the home. I'm going to share a quick story. I studied abroad and I was a religious studies major. So I was studying Catholicism at the time as a semester at sea. So I went to many different countries. And part of the program, we went and saw all these like beautiful cathedrals. And I'm talking to my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm like, these cathedrals are so beautiful with all this history. And like, just kind of makes me sad that like synagogues are so schlubby and small and, you know, and quiet. And, you know, talk to me about that. And she's like, well, Michelle, like you have to understand that so much of Judaism has always happened in the home. And there's so much of our tradition that is only able to, you know, continue taking place in the home within the family and other families in this community. And kind of the symbolism that we have walked with as a tradition of 
the values that we're sharing in a home setting. And I think, as you alluded to, synagogues and GCCs and federations, like with these big buildings, you lose that kind of centrality of the home as being a place where Judaism happens. And I think, although it's only a piece of your model, that's really kind of a piece that I think is so Jewish about the way that you do your work. The home is tremendously important. I remember when I was on a committee for an organization and someone had given money to build a teen lounge and everyone was so excited. We're going to build a teen lounge and then the teens are going to come here and then we're going to have young people in our building, right? It's a good little theory of change. There are a couple holes in it. One was that the building has hours. Right. So <laughs> coincidentally, those hours are essentially the same as when teenagers are in school. Then the question came up, I could, you know, run a program here on Sunday. And they said, well, yes, we just need to have at least two staff people. We need to pay time and a half to the other staff person who's there because they're working. And all of a sudden, it turned into such a nightmare. And in the home, you just don't have these rules. It doesn't have an open hour and a close hour and a sign outside that says when it's allowed and it's not. It has everything that you need. The challenge for the home is to do large-scale programs, Mm -hmm. large-scale events. Moish House isn't in that business. When we do large-scale things, we do them traditionally at third-party places for multiple days like a Jewish summer camp that we rent out in the off-season. So we just don't have that problem or that issue. But yeah, you see a lot of synagogues, for example, creating space building an entire building and a budget around providing for enough space that people use a couple times a year when they need that much space. So what would it look like if there weren't, let's say, sanctuaries as the center of synagogues? I don't know. I mean, it may be a more cost-effective model. Well, it's also the idea of the numbers are what, you know, dictate success, right? So you have a program with a certain speaker, oh, we got 100 people to come. Like, are butts in the seats really success? Or was that, you know, an engaging deep program where people met each other and there was some learning? Like, you know, the fact that you can say, oh, well, Moisha House in Los Angeles East had five people for Shabbat, you know, to not say that that's a failure because there was only five people, but to celebrate the success that they had a deep conversation about the environment or whatever, you know, really thinking more about how do we have deep experiences than a lot of people, right, at our experiences. Yeah, you're hitting on something hugely important. And what's that balance? So is there enough people that it makes it financially worth it for donors? So if we said we have five people at Shabbat, that may not be cost effective either, but does it need to be 500? So the way we think about it is butts and seats does not matter to us in the same way repetitive butts and seats Mm. matter. So we're really measuring people who come at least four times a year to programs. So if someone comes once, nice, doesn't matter, it has no impact. And so we're not aiming for those 1,000 person programs that people, and then they're done. And the other part is that we've gotten to this place because we're so obsessed with the numbers of people that it's just false data out there. You know, there's two things that exist in organizations across the board. I've never read an evaluation of an organization that isn't changing the world. And I also have never seen numbers that I believe. 
Right. So the question is really, what does it really mean? Did you give a thousand dollars to an organization to put your name as a sponsor for something? And now you're counting all the people who go to those programs. Do they even know that they've participated in your organization? Are they coming back? Are they donating? Are they engaged? I mean, this is what we should be asking. And when we submit our financials, there's an audit that comes in. A third party comes in and says, look, they're counting their numbers right. Or at least according to GAP, generally accepted accounting principles. Like when we compare organization A to organization B on their financials, they're speaking the same language. We don't do that with sort of our programmatic numbers and data. You can say whatever you want. And so the problem is you're sort of incentivized to do these programs that have low impact, high numbers. We're fortunate because we have a threshold that we're beyond in terms of how long we've been around and how many people are coming that we don't report at all on the butts and seats anymore because mm-hmm. it's, it's a garbage number. Right. And what matters is how many people are coming consistently. And that is what has impact. Yeah. So the, you know, thinking about that from when you begin to start thinking about it. So how do you measure that as you're kind of moving through when you're not just measuring butts and seats, you have to plan for that, right? To figure out to have the right data to be able to say, we've had these many repeated, you know, deep and that's, quantitative and qualitative data that you're both playing with. I remember the first organization that I worked for, the founder just constantly inflated the numbers (laughs) every time for marketing. And there's nothing that annoys me more than when an organization says, oh, well, we raised $3,500. Oh, we'll just call it 6,000. You're like, well, no, like you can't go. Well, I think we had like 5,000 people register, but we'll just say we had 7,000 people there. And I'm like, uh, no, and I, we called them, you know, let's say her name was Beth. We called them Beth numbers. Oh, well, we're just putting out Beth numbers. And you're like, well, no, like it, your Jewish organization has some standards and some values that if you're putting out a good product, if it's $5,000, like that should mean something if you're doing it well. I agree. And I think we have to have programmatic accounting principles the same way we have financial accounting principles. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a third party auditor go in and say, okay, let's spot check this. And without that, the problem- Which I would say no synagogue that I've ever known or been involved with ever has had an audit in any meaning. No, 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 no. Not at all, because it's in everyone's disinterest. Right. Everyone's disinterest, except- if we all put our interests aside and say what we're really trying to build is a strong, meaningful, connected, committed Jewish community, rather than trying to build our own organization to be bigger and better than the organization down the street. Mwah. Beautifully put. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So what's some advice that you might have for you know Jewish professionals out there, either the I'll throw a lot of different demographics at you. You know, you've got the younger professionals that are in these kind of stellar organizations trying to push through some innovations, trying to be leaders and maybe getting a bit of pushback or, you know, people who are maybe older that are looking at the demographic of 20s and 30s and saying, gosh, we really would like to figure out what we can do to help them feel welcome in our organization. I'll just mention briefly, because I've said it in a few other podcasts, we're going to have a high CEO turnover in the next 10 years. And we have a bit of a crisis that, you know, organizations are, and foundations are working on trying to figure out how do we build up our leadership so that the next generation of CEOs can be acceptable to change and reimagining these organizations that they'll be running and are ready to take that on. So lots of different kinds of Jewish professionals out there and lots of different stages of their work. Yeah, for me, the things that have been the most transformative are the folks who have helped me on a personal level the mentors who they care about Moish House, 
but they also really care about like my growth and how can you find some of those folks who are going to invest their time and energy in your growth. And when you're young and you're starting off, it's really important to find a few people who are going to be invested in your success in addition to sort of the organization's success. And they overlap quite a bit, but they are also unique. I also think that getting to experiences and places really matters tremendously, especially at the beginnings of the career. Going to like, let's say a GA or a biennial or a Jewish Funders Network conference, it's almost a complete waste of time unless you have someone who's gone to them before sort of take you there and introduce you to folks and engage you in a way, then all of a sudden it becomes such a professional development experience. I had a CEO of a large federation when I was maybe 23, 24 years old, gave me one full day. And all I did was do everything he was doing. I went to meetings that I had no business being in. I saw how these like things happen in like these hotel suites of, <laughs> of sort of donor meetings exist way outside the actual conference and then how they sort of get into the players. They're not waiting in line in the same ways and all this stuff. And it like opened up my eyes. I'm like, okay, I sort of see how this works. I don't need to wait 30 years to find out right. what's going on here. And so I think that's really key when you're on. And also, you know, if you're trying to build something or do something, make sure that you can do some small bets so that the first step isn't a million dollar grant. If you have demand that outweighs supply and enough tenacity, it can work. But a lot of folks have ideas, but haven't shown the demand for those ideas. And without testing it out, you're sort of stuck. You're not going to get the buy-in. And then the last thing I think you asked about was around, you know, organizations wanting to engage a younger generation. I think that the biggest thing is to take a giant step back and say, what are we really trying to do? Are we trying to convince people to be us? Or are we trying to give people a space to be them? Mm -hmm. And if it's the first, I don't think you're going to be successful. And if it's the second, then I think there are a lot of people who are here to help and participate. Right. Beautifully articulated. Yeah. I mean, I'll just mention that, you know, my husband and I, when he moved out to Los Angeles, started working for a synagogue and there was no 20s or 30s, anything. And he said, you know, let's get it going. And, you know, three years later, you know, regular events with 20 different couples that then became members of the synagogue and just a really vibrant, wonderful group. You know, when we move and we are, you know, visiting all these synagogues and we're like, so where are the people that are like us, right? Where are the people that don't have kids yet? And where are the other couples and even young kids? Like, just give us something. And it's just not there. And so it makes me think like, is it for the kind of synagogue world, if you foresee actual change happening in federations and JCCs and synagogues or the eventual shift where those will fade out and others will take the place? I think that they're in a tough position because in many cases, the priority has become the budget, not the mission. So when the priority becomes the budget, then the folks you have to serve are the people who can best meet the needs of your budget. Mm -hmm. So what I've seen in a lot of synagogues is that the whole thing is designed around two to five families and they all have veto power. And that's where the focus of the energy is going to go because the biggest concern is the budget. That's just what's happened. And so I actually think it's really not necessarily about raising more money. It's about how to actually have a smaller budget. And can you build a 200 to 400 person congregation or more on a budget that's 40% of what the average is. I absolutely think you can, but it looks a little different. And so as long as we're in a place of sort of 
struggle or desperation around the budget, it's hard to make decisions that are going to be more of the long-term mission-based things. Well, it's interesting because, you know, people always say, oh, we need to think more like businesses. And what I'm hearing from you is like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, Stop being so concerned about, you know, that and really think about the... Well, and if you thought like a business, your business model's in really bad, right. <laughs> really bad shape for that, you know? And some of it is about, you know, what does this population sort of need and want? And the truth is, young couples that don't have kids or really young kids, they just want and need something different than a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. It's not like they don't like each other. Some things do overlap, but for the most part, it's going to look different. So, so you know, the question is, how do you cater to those needs and how do you give them the opportunity to create and build ideas and lead the way? Once they feel like they have a leadership role where they're actually leading on their ideas, the other pieces I think will fall into place. What's for the future for you, David? Is this, you know, you've been doing this work for most of your you know, professional career. Are you, you know, still excited and energized and ready for the next 10 years? Do you have other ideas percolating? Is it confidential <laughs> information? You know, I've been really fortunate in Moisha House that we've been able to continue to evolve both in the core model and other pieces like this work we're doing with the Open Door Project around investing in emerging spiritual leaders to create Judaism that looks and feels different than some of the traditional places you might walk into. Mm -hmm. I'm loving it. I think it's so important. This idea of creating like a adult Jewish summer camp that could happen in different places around the world and gather, I think, thousands. Bring one to New Jersey and I'm there. (laughs) We have one Memorial Day weekend at Capitol Camps in Pennsylvania. Easy drive from New Jersey. I'll I'll Snapchat you and you can send me the, the link. It was like the most fun I've had. And it was like a wide variety, you know, 20s, 30s, this 40s. I mean, this one was well, and that's really you know, not to go back to my own experience, but you know, that's what I had in high school through my nifty experiences, right? I like kill for weekend retreat where you can just go and unplug and be at a camp. And I mean, that was so pivotal to my teenage years to have that five times a year with awesome people. And then I was, you know, lucky enough to be a youth group advisor. So then I did that for another, you know, three or four years. But then like, then you really miss that time of unplugging, of recharging that other than, you know, the model that you've created, it's not in abundance. It's not, you know, a synagogue is trying to do it for all of the families of their whole synagogue and everyone has different priorities. And so it's- Well, that's why we're seeing things like South by Southwest and Coachella and Burning Man and Bonnaroo. I mean, now there are like four or five, not Jewish, but adult summer camp experiences. Mm -hmm. They're all started by Jews. These things are popular and they're where we're going. I mean, I have to say it was one of the most, not just fun, but energizing weekends of the year for me. And Mm -hmm. I can't wait to go back. And so the idea that Moisha House has- been able to be a platform for other people too. Like it's what keeps me involved. A woman, Sarah Waxman, who's built something called At the Well, reimagining Rosh Hodesh groups. And like she used to be a Moish House resident. She's just on fire. And like for Moish House to be able to serve as her fiscal sponsor, mm-hmm. charge her nothing, try to introduce her to some people right. and play that role. It's like, wow, like I'm loving these pieces of it. And so I would say as long as our sort of senior team stays in place, which makes my life a lot easier, I hope to stick around as long as it's in the path of not allowing next year to look like last year. 
So how do you keep it all together? How do you keep your life balanced? Is it these wonderful weekend retreats? <laughs> how do you kind of, you know, balance your role is, you know, it's a very heavy role. 55 staff members, all these programs, houses, I'm sure lots of demands for interviews like mine and people yeah. wanting your time and attention. Someone said the, the key to happiness is having low expectations. You're kind of right. always, you're always blown away. I mean, I think one of the big things for me is living in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have a dozen people in the offices. Our offices aren't in LA, San Francisco, New York, DC. I mean, the, they're in, we have an office in London, but Charlotte and San Diego are the two largest offices, North County, San Diego. And the great thing about Charlotte is that when I'm home, I'm home. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's not a lot of meetings. I love the Jewish community here, but it's not like New York where you could be at every evening at events right. and things like that. Now it requires a bunch of travel. And so when I'm traveling, I'm all in. And when I'm home, I'm home. That's a part of it. And the other part is just letting stuff go. And I think perfect can be the enemy of good. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's like, let's do a bunch of good stuff and not get stuck on trying to make something perfect where it can't actually happen. Yeah. So I think all those things play. And we have, this is my first year as a dad also. So we oh, have- congratulations. Uh, yeah, almost 10 months old. And so that's been a whole new addition to all of it. And I say the last thing is, you know, it's important to sort of all be in it. You know, it's my wife is incredibly supportive and, you know, she's got a great career and job and I work to be supportive of what she's doing as well. So that matters a lot too. Wonderful. So we've definitely covered a lot of ground. Or is there anything else to kind of percolating from anything we've talked about that you want to share as we close out? You know, the thing I'd say to some people kind of thinking about this space or this field is other thing that I think matters is really making sure that you're having fun and enjoying yourself because the more you're enjoying yourself, the more others will want to be a part of whatever it is that you're doing. People want to surround themselves with good experiences. And so if we can create that, then I think we'll be better for it. You know, I appreciate this experience that you're creating for the podcast and for people working in the field and space. Well, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate your time tonight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Moisha House is growing and thriving for a reason. What David shared with us was the strategy of the organization and a style of risk, change, staff ownership, and decentralized engagement. I'll be speaking to a few of what I call millennial organizations, those founded after 2000. And you'll hear the same patterns of the way they structure their organization around the types of experiences people are looking for in Jewish engagement. Shabbat dinners, weekend retreats, sukkah meals, exciting outings. These organizations have looked at the need and created it. If you build it, they will come. If you shy behind what has been and try to make others just like you, they might not. Embracing outside thinking Coming up with those radical, big, hairy, audacious goals, stretching your thinking from what you believe could be possible to what you could have never imagined to be possible. Jewish life will only continue to shift in these ways. We can't fight against the way our culture is changing and moving forward. Your organization can choose to take the risk, try something new, bring in new ideas, think differently about the way we engage with each other and possibly thrive, or to stay safe, run the course, 
and hope you don't fizzle out. David gives us a lot to think about in the way that we run our organizations and a lot of really great nuggets of advice that I urge you to consider. I really appreciate his time sharing all of this with us and wish him the best of success as he grows to 500 Moisha houses globally. We want to thank our newest partner, the American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina, where intellectually curious teenagers from 31 states and 35 countries engage in a holistic curriculum. We look forward to sharing our conversation with Glenn Drew, the Chief Executive Officer and General Counsel in the coming weeks. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.